0: hope that you will turn with me in a bible to the book of 2nd Samuel 2nd Samuel and today we'll be looking at chapter 17 verses 1 to 14 2nd Samuel 17 verses 1 to 14 we are continuing to look at the story of David's son, Absalom. Absalom. Absalom stood to inherit the throne of his father, David. He was first in line, but he wasn't willing to wait. He wanted the throne now. So he did everything he could to undermine his father, David's authority to undermine his kingdom, and to usurp the throne from his father. And he was wildly successful in that effort. And when we pick up our reading at verse seventeen, at chapter 17, we find that Absalom has it all. He's taken Jerusalem. David, the great king David, is now on the, ro- on the run in the wilderness. Absalom has it all. He has the throne. He has the majority of the people on his side. There's only one thing he lacks now. He's taken the throne. Now, all that remains is to take the life of his father David. A wicked scheme, to be sure. But one that he doesn't want to get wrong. He knows that his next move is critical. He knows that his next move calls for wisdom and discernment. He doesn't want to make a mistake. He doesn't want to come to regret what he's done. And that's something that we all want. No, we're probably not conspiring wickedly like Absalom, but we all want to live with less regret, do we not? And if possible, no regrets. And to live with no regret, we know that we need wisdom. We need discernment. No one sets out to make foolish decisions, generally. When it comes to our finances, when it comes to our relationships, when it comes to any decision that we make, we don't want to be foolish. We want to be wise. We don't want to have regrets. And That's what Absalom wants. And the scripture shows us what it means to learn to live with less regret. But the reality is, we are finite sinners living in a fallen world. And while we can look back in hindsight to evaluate the past, our memory is always skewed or limited at best. And we certainly don't have foresight to look into the future. We are finite. And we're sinners. We're all driven by What is in our own best interests? We're all prideful in our hearts. And so, in this life, many of the decisions you make and that I make as finite fallen sinners living in a fallen world will be tainted by regrets. We need to know that. There's no avoiding that, it's inevitable. Many of the decisions that you make will be tainted by regrets. But what I hope to show you today and to convince you of today is that there is one decision, one decision that you will never, ever come to regret. And that decision is this. Surrendering the entirety of your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Surrendering the entirety of your life to the all-encompassing sovereignty and lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will never ever regret that. You will regret many other things, many other decisions, but you will never regret that decision. And I hope to show you why that's the case. So we pick up our reading together at verse 1 as Absalom seeks advice on what to do next. Ahithophel said to Absalom, I would choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. I would attack him while he is weary and weak. I would strike him with terror And then all the people with him will flee. I would strike down only the king and bring all the people back to you. The death of the man you seek will mean the return of all. All the people will be unharmed. This plan seemed good to Absalom and to all the elders of Israel. So first we have Ahithophel's advice. Who is Ahithophel? Ahithophel was, at one time, one of King David's counselors. He was someone that David trusted and respected. And we're told just prior to this that Ahithophel's advice in these days was put on par with God. People listened to him like they listened to God. That's how respected he was. And yet, Ahithophel for reasons that are not disclosed, chose to defect, chose to betray David. He chose to cast his lot with Absalom. So now he's on Absalom's team. And the advice that he gives to Absalom is, first of all, for Absalom, to give him the authority to go out against David. Now, the way that NIV translates it is, is a hypothetical. If I were you, I would choose. But it's more clear in the Hebrew. I want you to let me choose 12,000 men and set out tonight. And I, notice the emphatic I, I would strike him. I would strike him down. Strike only the king. He wants the authority to do this himself. He doesn't want Absalom to get involved. And when you read the rest of the story, you see that this is actually really good advice. This is really good advice. It would behoove Absalom to heed it. He also thinks that it would be good for Absalom to strike now. Don't wait. Strike David now. Why? Because David is weak and beleaguered His men are famished. They're out in the middle of nowhere. They're in the wilderness. Now's the time, Absalom. Strike while he's down. And he says, don't attack all of his men. There's hope of of bringing most of them, maybe even all of them back. This needs to be a surgical strike. This needs to be precise. Just go after David. He's the only one you really have to fear. He's really the only threat. And maybe if you just take out David, then everybody else will be fearful and they'll come running to your side. And we're told in verse four, this plan seemed good to Absalom and to all the elders of Israel. This is good advice. But it comes up short. And so for you and for me to live with less regret, we need to learn the difference between good advice and God's advice. We need to learn the difference between good advice and God's advice. Ahithophel's advice, in one sense, is brilliant. In one sense, it would be Effective and efficient. This would actually deliver what Absalom wants. But it's missing God. It's missing the X factor, the one difference maker in all of your planning and decision making. But we tend to be like Ahithophel. It's a very popular way of reasoning to say okay establish what your goal is and then work your way to there Let's develop your strategy implement your strategy but be clear about the end toward which you're working and planning right that's that's sound that's effective that'll work right that's misguided If that's all it is, if that's all it is, if we don't bring God into the equation of our decision-making, then our plans are doomed to fail. Oh, sure, they may be temporarily successful. To be sure. Just consider the example of someone else who's a famous betrayer in the Bible, Judas Iscariot. Judas had a plan to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He worked to accomplish that plan, and he was successful. Jesus was betrayed. Jesus was crucified. The people who wanted Jesus killed conspired against him. They got what they wanted. He was bleeding and dying on the cross. And yet, ultimately, they failed, and they failed miserably. Judas failed miserably. He he accomplished his intermediate goal of betraying Jesus, but he failed because the grave could not contain God's anointed Messiah. God's anointed Savior. So Don't be deceived into thinking that good advice is necessarily God's advice. Human beings can come up with some very impressive plans. Some brilliant plans. But if God isn't involved in the plans, then they will ultimately come to nothing. And what we need to remember is that all of God's plans, all of God's purposes for the entirety of history, center on exalting and glorifying Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. And ultimately, the measure of the history of your individual life isn't going to be measured by your education. It's not going to be measured by your intelligence. It's not going to be measured by any one individual decision that you have made. It will be measured entirely on the basis of what you say about Jesus. Do you realize that? This is where all of history is moving. And ultimately the judgment of God on history will depend on Jesus every government every scheme every politician every individual life comes down to what do you say about Jesus did you respect him did you love him good good but that's not good enough was he lord of your life were you willing to surrender everything you are and everything you have to God's anointed. At this time, God's anointed is David, but David wasn't God's ultimate plan. David is one step along the way toward God's ultimate anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must be willing to lay it all on the table for Jesus. Our career decisions, our relationship decisions, our sex life, how we spend our money. Everything. Everything. That is what the lordship of Jesus Christ entails. But you see Ahithophel, you see Absalom, they give no thought whatsoever to what God says, to what God might think, to what God is doing. No thought whatsoever That's why this advice may be good, but it is not God's advice. Know the difference. Because you may regret following good advice, but you will never regret following God's advice. But Absalom, for some reason, wants a second opinion. And this pivot to get this second opinion turns out to be the turning point of his life it all actually would have been different, hypothetically, if he had just followed Ahithophel's advice. But he doesn't. And he doesn't ultimately because Absalom, Ahithophel, and Hushai, David, none of these characters are really driving the story. The one who is really driving the story, the one who is really sovereign and in control over it all, is the Lord God Almighty, who governs and directs all things by the power of his will and his plans. So let's see the second opinion, verse 5. But Absalom said, summon also Hushai, the archite, so we can hear what he has to say as well. When Hushai came to him, Absalom said, Ahithophel has given this advice. Should we do what he says? If not, give us your opinion. Hushai replied to Absalom, "'The advice Ahithophel has given is not good this time. "'You know your father and his men. "'They are fighters, "'and as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. "'Besides, your father is an experienced fighter. "'He will not spend the night with the troops. "'Even now, he is hidden in a cave or some other place.' If he should attack your troops first, whoever hears about it will say, There has been a slaughter among the troops who follow Absalom. Then even the bravest soldier, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a fighter, and that those with him are brave. So, I advise you, let all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, be gathered to you, with you yourself leading them into battle. Then we will attack him wherever he may be found, and we will fall on him as dew settles on the ground. Neither he nor any of his men will be left alive. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we will drag it down to the valley until not so much as a pebble. Is left. So who is Hushai who offers this second opinion? Hushai is a friend of King David. And when you go back to chapter 15 at the end, we read about how as David is making his way out of Jerusalem with his tail between his legs, he's told that Ahithophel. Your trusted advisor has betrayed you. And so what does David do? First, he prays. He says, God, turn Ahithophel's advice into foolishness. But not only does he pray, he also makes a plan. And his plan involves his friend Hushai. He says, Hushai, go cozy up to Absalom. Make Absalom trust you. And in this way, you will work to undermine Ahithophel and his advice and that's exactly what we see in these verses everything Hushai says here undercuts what Ahithophel has said and at the base level what Hushai is doing here is really not offering advice at all is he really what he's doing is trying to manipulate Absalom so that he can buy more time for David that's really what he wants to do he wants to delay Ahithophel says, strike now. Hit David now while he's down. Hushai says, be careful, be careful. That's not a good idea. How does he get there? Look at the beginning of verse 8. What does he say? First word. You, you know your father and his men. And if you know anything about Absalom, you have to see that this is Absalom's song. This is music to his ears. He is all about himself. He is all about his pride. He is all about his ego. And he would love nothing more than to have someone tell him, Absalom, you know what to do. You know your father. You know him better than Ahithophel. You know what you should do. And you see how Hushai is appealing to his prideful ego. This is his goal. He knows Absalom. He knows how to twist him and to manipulate him. And that's exactly what he does. You know your father. You know he's he's a great fighter. And you know that, yeah, they may be in the wilderness, but these are enraged, fierce fighters. Do you really think that you're just going to be able to come and sneak up on them? There's no way. That's crazy. They're like a mama bear. Do you really want to just go after a mama bear who's missing her cubs? Of course not. That's foolish. And what Hushai is doing is also appealing to his fears. His fears. What if we attack and David's not even with them? And then they launch a counterattack and then some of your men fall and then the work breaks out. Absalom's troops are losing. You don't want that, do you, Absalom? You don't want that word getting out on the street. No, no, no. Here's what you should do. Whereas Ahithophel counsels a precise surgical attack, we need to wait, Absalom. Let's gather all Israel. Let's go in with a massive, massive, overwhelming attack. Doesn't that make more sense? And then, if we do that, no one will escape. Even if they're pinned into a city, we'll bring ropes. We'll lay siege to that city and we'll drag it down, and not so much as a pebble will be left. Now, doesn't that make good sense? Contrast how eloquent and articulate and lengthy Hishai's speech is compared to Ahithophel's. Ahithophel's is straight and to the point, Hashai's is elaborate. And, eloquent. and if we are to live with less regret, we need to learn the difference between eloquent advice and trustworthy advice. Because on some level, all of us, you, me, all of us, are suckers for Hushai's tactics. We are. We love it when someone appeals to our ego. We love it when someone strokes our pride. We love it when someone says, you know best. You do what you want to do. You're, you're so special. You've got all these gifts inside of you. You do you, right? Be you. You're totally sufficient just as you are. We love that. That feels good. We're not all that different from Absalom, really. And we're also subject to when someone uses fear tactics. Notice how Hushai isn't really appealing to facts here. This is all hypothetical. What if we go out? What if David is hiding? What if they launch a counterattack and they hit us first? It's all hypothetical. There are no facts here. He's merely preying on Absalom's fears. And right now, in this moment, in this world, there are voices all around you. There are voices in the phone, in your pocket right now, that are going to be screaming, be afraid, be afraid, never mind facts, be afraid of this person, be afraid of this politician, be afraid of this party, be afraid of this legislation, fear, fear, fear. And we're suckers for it a lot of times, aren't we? If we're honest with ourselves, be honest with yourself. You know that you fall prey to this. You listen to his shyness and you say, well, that's a really good speech, you know. Man, he's articulate. And we fall prey to that. And I need to say here as well that this is part of the challenge of preaching. What I'm doing right now. Because there's a tension involved in what I'm doing right now. On the one hand, I want to be articulate. I want to be eloquent. God has given us rhetoric. It's something to be used for good purposes. It's something to be used effectively. And God can use that to stir people, to move people, to lead people to respond to his truth and what he has revealed. also subject to manipulation, isn't it? And what I don't want is for you to be moved by my eloquence, if there's any there at all. I don't want you to be moved by that. I want you to be moved by the plain truth of God's Word. I want you to see the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ for yourself, and I want that to draw you. I don't want to draw you. I can't anyway. But do you see the tension here? Eloquence is good. Rhetoric can be good. But it can also be manipulative. And so what you need, what I need, is advice that is trustworthy. And where do we go for trustworthy advice other than to the God who is trustworthy? Trustworthy and who is trustworthy and right in everything that he says. Go to God for advice. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. You can count on him. You may regret following eloquent advice. You will at some point, in fact. But you will never regret following God's trustworthy advice. Absalom will come to regret the advice that he chose to listen to. And what we read in verse 14 is the linchpin for understanding this entire story and the entire story of Absalom. Here's what we read in verse 14. Absalom, and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the Archite is better than that of Ahithophel. And here the narrator inserts these words. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice. Notice, it's still good advice as judged by brilliance and effectiveness. This is good advice. But God makes it look like and sound like foolishness. Why? In order to bring disaster on Absalom. In order to judge Absalom's pride. In order to bring to nothing everything that Absalom has schemed and plotted. That's what God's doing. What a a beautiful and clear, plain nugget of truth. And it shows us that if we are to live with less regret, we need to learn the difference between what we can see, what looks like it is happening, what appearances tell us, and what God has promised. We need to learn the difference between what we can see What seems reasonable, what seems clear in our eyes, and what God has promised. There is all the difference in the world. What Absalom sees, what Ahithophel sees, is David on the run. He's weak. He's been rejected. He's done. He's over. His story is finished. Now it's Absalom's time on the stage Now the spotlight is on him. Now all the glory is for Absalom. Not so fast. Why? Because when we go back to chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, God made an unconditional and sovereign promise to David. He told him, when you rest, when you die by natural causes, I'm going to build a kingdom out of your household. And there is nothing and there is no one that can stop that ultimately. Oh, they may try. It may temporarily be derailed. It may look like those promises have failed, but ultimately they cannot be. And this brings us to where we are on the Sunday after having celebrated Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Because all that some of his disciples could see was that he was crucified and he was buried. And it seemed like that was it. And so we have these two disciples walking to a little place called Emmaus, as described in Luke chapter 24. And a stranger happens to be walking with them He overhears, they're discussing the things that have happened in Jerusalem recently. And he says, what things have happened? They replied, about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God. And all the people, the chief priests and our rulers, handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see Jesus. This is you. This is me today. We've heard the stories. We've heard of the visions. We've we've heard that some people have seen Jesus, but we haven't. So, what does that mean for us? Here's what that stranger says to them. How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This is none other than the Lord Jesus walking beside them. The resurrected Lord of the universe walking beside them. Showing them, guys, this had to happen. You're judging based on what you can see right now. You're judging based on what you can't see right now. I'm telling you, your faith is to be determined on what God has said. How foolish, he says. And so right now in your life, here's the decision that is before you, before me. Are you going to be a wise person? A person who makes a decision that has no regrets. Are you going to confess that wisdom, ultimately, is not about your age? It's not about your life experience. It's not about your education. It's not about your intelligence. It's not about anything that you've done or left undone. True wisdom, God's wisdom comes down to believing and living by what He has said. And what He has said all points to one person. The one person who has done for you what you could never do for yourself, and that is to make atonement on the cross for your sins, for all of your failures, to trust God, for all of your failures Efforts to try to find good advice, to try to establish your own wisdom, to try to make your own plans, to try to live by your own wisdom. All of our failures to trust God were laid squarely upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ on the cross. And He bore them willingly for sinners like you and like me. And because He did so, God raised Him from the dead so that He is the one To whom every single one of us, every single one of us, must render an account before his judgment seat. And before his judgment seat, we can't boast in our plans, can we? We can't boast in our accomplishments. We can't boast in anything we've done or said. Our only hope is God's sovereign and free grace made to us in the Lord Jesus Christ encouraged by this. What Jesus has done on the cross for you has the power to override any and every regret you may have about what you have done. His work on the cross, His life, His power can override Any regret you may have, and we will all have regrets in this world. That is what it means to be a human being, a finite, fallen sinner in this world. You will have regrets. But what Jesus has done can override all of them. And if you cast your lot with him, if you surrender to his lordship, then you will never regret that decision. May you do that by the power of the Holy Spirit working in you and through you today as we go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, as we hear these words spoken by the Lord Jesus, how foolish. Prevent us from looking down on these disciples Help us to hear those words directed at us. For all the times that we have judged our lives or this world or the lives of others based on our own instincts, based on our own understanding, based on what makes sense in our minds and in our understanding, we confess that that will get us nowhere. And even the most brilliant and impressive human plans will come to nothing. Lord, we want our lives, we want our plans, we want everything that we have, all that we are, to be driven by what you have revealed, what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on him. Help us to joyfully worship him Help us to be thankful for all that he has done. Help us to never, ever get over it as we worship him joyfully now. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.